this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 251. We're recording on Thursday, March 8th, 2018. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. You missed 250, but you're back for 251. I did. You know, I was sad to not be here for the balloon drop, but I can't say I'm sad that I got a week off of making noises about men doing terrible things. Luckily, we've got more of that for you, so we saved some. You, you, don't, you didn't miss it all. <laughs> Unfortunately... Uh, you know, you lucked out and that there's still some of this to do. So, um, yeah, got lots of email responses um, the last couple of weeks. You know, we're hanging there. Everybody hang in there. Uh, well, we can make it. It it will. I'm not going to say it's going to pass, but, um, you know, I think we can get through this. All right. Uh, you know, let's do our first sponsor because we got we got we yeah. got the good stuff to talk about today. Let's let's do yeah, this we'll and, and a good to... sponsor that. People are buying this book. I'm seeing this everywhere. Instagram, people people are buying it. It's been, I think it was on our like most anticipated books of the year list. Contributors have been talking about it forever. This is just like solidly book riot. Mm. It's a perfect fit. It is Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. This is about Zaley Adebola. She remembers when the soil of Orisha hummed with magic. Burners ignited flames, titers beckoned waves, and Zaley's reaper mother summoned forth souls. But everything changed the night that magic disappeared. Under the orders of a ruthless king, magi were killed, leaving Zeli without a mother and her people without hope. But now Zeli has one chance to bring back magic and strike against the monarchy. With the help of a rogue princess, Zeli must outwit and outrun the crown prince who is hellbent on eradicating magic for good. Dangers lurk in Orisha, where snow leopanaires prowl and vengeful spirits wait in the waters. Yet the greatest danger may be Zeli herself as she struggles to control her powers and her growing, growing fear feelings for an enemy. This is a brilliant debut novel. The prose is vivid and gorgeous. The world that she's built is just wholly absorbing. And the struggles of race, class, and oppression that are faced by the main characters are really a unique situation in the world of the narrative, but they also reflect powerful themes that resonate in modern times. This is West African-inspired fantasy that conjures up a world of magic and danger. If you're into Lee Bardugo or Saba Tahir, this is going to be a great fit for you. And good news, it's the first installment of a trilogy so you can get your first fix and then look forward to future ones and a film is already in the works so get in on this one from the ground floor it is children of blood and bone by tomi adeyemi it is out now and you can find it wherever books are sold or click a link in the show notes um i don't know that we're going to spend too much time on this one today but i you know i i think we have to have to uh, I think what we want to do with these is relay the news, um, give us some context, but I don't know that we want to dwell too much on each individual of these stories. We're yeah. going to kind of playing this by ear, but I think um, in the Sherman Alexi developing story, um, I guess the shoe finally dropped um, that, you know, last week, Amanda and I talked about this vague preemptive 
statement that Alexi made. The, yeah, the women are telling the truth, but I don't remember doing the things, yeah. but I'm sorry, but it's not real. It was very weird. And we didn't at that point have specific stories. Um, and the the story came out, uh, NPR uh, ran a story um, in which three women uh, were willing to go on the record and use their, their real names um, and tell their stories about their mm-hmm. experience with, with with Alexi and then a couple of other uh, people, a couple other women on, went on the record but didn't give their names. Um, I'm not suggesting that that may or may not matter to you. I'm just saying there's a difference there. I, I, I still don't know how to parse these myself, still trying to figure it out. Um, but the stories are, and I don't want to, I don't want to get into specifics, specifics for, yeah, a bu- I don't think we need to do that, but I will say it is, uh, I don't know. I mean, we'll put the link in the show notes. You can decide what to do with the stories. I mean, they're not good. <laughs> I'm not saying they're not, Yeah, <laughs> they're not as, this is going to sound weird. They're not as bad as they could have been. Like they're not criminal, <laughs> right? They don't rise to that level. I don't think. Um, yeah, this is not. Like, it's not the worst bad behavior. These are not the biggest violations, but they are violations. And I think for his position, we see in these women's statements, at least, that these are violations of sort of physical safety boundaries, but also abuses of his power and his position offering to mentor women and then making them feel that the mentorship or the access to his connections, his network was contingent upon uh, some sort of sexual interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bad. Um, but for those of you who maybe don't want to go look at it directly, I'm just trying to give you a sense of what we're dealing with here. Probably not jailable offenses, but still very, very disturbing and wrong. Um, so anyway, there's that. And again, the, the fallout continues. Um, Sherman's position is unusual in the literary world for a bunch of reasons. Um, he's a great writer. Um, also he is the face of Native American literature in the U S. Um, but also seems to have served as not a roadblock, but like an easy person to pick out without, without, uh, in Native American literature, without having to go deeper and look at other writers and consider what other writers are doing. Um, so the damage feels especially bad, but it also shows how lopsided, unidirectional, you know, non-inclusive our thinking about American literature has been because, you know, it's almost a token situation um, that not because he doesn't deserve it, but kind of stands in for a whole body of work and experiences that really shouldn't operate that way. Um, And so I think one, if there's a good thing to come out of this, and it certainly doesn't make up for anything, is that people are saying, if you're not interested in reading Sherman Alex anymore, but here are some other native writers that maybe you should turn to that you haven't heard of. Um, Wish we could have done it before, could have done it before. uh, But maybe that's a silver lining to a very dark cloud um, over, over his work. And it's going to take time um, to, to figure out what to do with this corpus. Cause certainly in the literary world of the names we've talked about, I mean, James Dashner and Jay Asher, like they had some big properties that became movies and TV shows and whatever. But I think Alexi is ingrained in syllabi and library collections and bookstores and just sort of the readerly and critical imagination 
Yeah, there's a place in I just don't know, yeah. modern, sort of modern canon, certainly in classrooms and syllabi on library reading lists, and also his cultural standing, as you said, that we, like we should not have mm-hmm. one face of Native American literature, but that's where we have been, and he has been it. Yeah. Um, and that is a very complex and tangly issue to be looking at here as well. So I think this is the biggest of the stories so far to come out of publishing, um, at least in terms of the, I think the scope of the impact um, that finding this out about him will have is, is the biggest so far. Like Daniel Handler may have sold more books, um, but Sherman Alexie's place in the culture of literature, the world of letters and academia and his position as uh, kind of an an ambassador of native American literature in that community is um, this, this one's going to be felt in a lot of places for a long time. I think. And I'll throw myself on the pile. Um, you know, I think I tweeted after I finished um, his the memoir last year, which we talked about and raved about. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was like, "Is there a world in which Sherman Alexie eventually wins the Nobel Prize?" And I was dead serious last year um, mm-hmm. about that. And in thinking about it since, you know, I, we we do these kind of painful gallows humor type games and slack with our, with ourselves sometimes. And we, I think we at one point did like, if you could protect someone like just the, oh, the name, yeah. what, whatever we knew this stuff was going to happen. And we we're like, okay, who, who do we, would we be most hurt and disappointed or would cost the most to us personally? Again, not as someone who's experienced anything, but just as a fan, as a person who cares about books. And boy, I got to tell you, Alexi, I don't know if he's number one, but he's on the. He would have been in the top three or four of people's. Like, boy, I would really be especially damaging to my worldview. Um, again, it's not about me, but I, just to give some sense of like the body blow, you know, that mm-hmm. that this really is. Um, so anyway, there we are. Go go read the story. Go read the NPR story if you if you want to. Um, but also, if you don't want to, I mean, I could certainly understand. Yeah, man, that. I don't blame I, I you. I would, I would like. To, I'm trying to look honestly and openly at it, so I'm, I'm trying not to look through my fingers. But I could understand if you know you don't have to talk about it or think about it for a living. Then, you know, give yourself some cover. That's totally fine too. Yeah, grab your thunder blanket, make a nice cup of tea. It's okay. Yeah. All right. Um, let's do another sponsor, and then we've got Barnes and Noble news. Like two juicy <sighs> Barnes and Noble news stories. I think we like to sink our teeth into Barnes and Noble stuff now, probably as much as anything. And maybe we should talk about why here in just a second. But let's do our first sponsor um, right now. So here, here you go. I was I was doing a, a placement for this for Book Riot Deals this morning, and I was hooked by this first line. The Salem Witchcraft Trials meets Practical Magic and Hocus Pocus. That, maybe that should be the end of it. So uh, if, if, you, if you're enough, if you're going to buy right now, go look for The Wicked Deep uh, by Shay Ermshaw. I'm sorry, is that an E or N? I'm getting old. It's Earn, an Earnshaw. E-R-N-S-H-A-double, Shay Earnshaw. Uh, the Wicked Deep. Salem Witchcraft Trials meets Practical Magic and Hocus Pocus in this seductive tale about three sisters who return every summer in order to exact their revenge on the town that killed them from witch- for witchcraft two centuries ago. I'm going to go read this right now, <laughs> so you're going to need a new co-host. A <laughs> uh, story about th- these sisters and their quest for revenge and how love may be the only thing powerful enough to stop them. 
Uh, so I, that's it. I, I, don't, I, I mean, I don't even know what to say. It's from Simon & Schuster. You can go check it out. It has a wonderful, beautiful cover. Uh, and it's uh, out now, wherever books are sold. That's The Wicked Deep by Shay Earnshaw. And um, yeah. Genius. Yeah, yeah. Re- re- annual Revenge Sister Witches. Uh, annual Revenge Sister there, Yes. There it is. Go go <laughs> check that out. Um you know, I don't know. It's 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 good counter programming from the story we were just talking about uh, to some degree. Um, I don't know if we have anything else to say about this next story, except we are contractually obligated by be being who we are um, to wave all of the <laughs> Muppet arms. Finally, Jeff, we get to wave Muppet know, arms. It's, it's been it's, so it's long. It's cathartic. It's 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 uh, it's spring is here, Rebecca Shinsky. Um, cathartic Muppet arms. This is all we know about it. So this is not a a person I know, though, when I saw the tweet, you know, she's a literary agent with Curtis Brown, which is a big time, like legit literary agency. So I don't think this is, I think this is legit. Don't you? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a good, this is a good source. But she tweeted that Pulitzer Prize winning author of Gilead, Marilyn Robinson's next novel uh, is going to come out. Well, actually, do you know what for delivery means? That means she's going to does that mean that the manuscript will be done? She in will 20, turn it in. So in who knows when it'll yeah. be published? I guess right. Do you have a better sense of timelines yeah. than I do? Like if it's delivered in well, 2019, what do you think? I mean, it's it also depends on how big of a deal they decide to make it. Like if she delivers it in January of 2019, they could conceivably publish. This is going to be a fall book, I would think. Like a Marilyn Robinson novel is a right. fall book, so I would think fall 2019, or if they extend it out, fall. 2020. But I think this also, so this is Marilyn Robinson. Yay! That's not too far from and now. It's already 2018. It's, it's March of 2018. We're looking at 16 months, maybe 16, 19, yeah. 20 months. And, you know, I think it also hinges. If I were the publisher, some of the timeline too would hinge on, is this another novel mm. in the world of Gilead? Like, are we finally getting, don't say our it. Botan? You're going to, you're going to, you're going to ruin it. I mean, can I to whom do I light a candle yeah I don't know (laughs) or is this a wholly new thing um and I would think a continuance of that world that people have been waiting to get into they might push out sooner than something that was standalone standalone so just the way that I'm thinking about it but honestly like whenever you want to give me a new Marilyn Robinson novel I will take it I'm gonna make like a countdown thing on my phone the day that they tell us what the release the release date is but this is the news my heart needed this week I mean we've gotten what two collections of essays um, since the Gilead mm-hmm. saga began which was what 15 years ago now is that when that yeah. came out I know it's not I was, that long yeah Maybe I remember reading long. it in college but she hasn't written fiction not set in that saga since Gilead. Right. So it would be a break, you know, three, three novels in a row. Um, boy, I'm excited. I, I could, I, I was great news. I was surprised I didn't see more about it, but I guess it's just a tweet. We know nothing else about it. Not everyone thinks about these things like we do. Uh, I, and I was going to, I think the, uh, tribe of people that wave Muppet arms over Marilyn Robinson to the extent that we do is like, we're not the only two, yeah. but it's a, it's a smaller group. And it was an Insta follow. This is not someone I'd ever heard of. Um, her name is um, Monica, Monica Woods. Woods. But if you have breaking Marilyn Robinson news, I instantly follow you on Twitter. I don't right. know how, 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 this is not acceptable that I didn't know like, that this is a What place. other criterion could there, there, there be? There is none. There's none. Um, so that is wonderful news. We're very excited about that. I may have publicly tweet sworn excitement about it in Which multiple channels. You just, 
See, you don't, uh, you're not the sweary one no. in this party, typically publicly. So that was also very exciting. It was, it was a, a real uh, indicator of my level of excitement. Uh, all right. So Barnes & Noble, um, signs of life, uh, death rattles. I don't know how to take the, I mean, it, <laughs> you know. I don't think they even know. They don't know. know. They, they, like, they what's don't. the diagnosis over there? They're like, shruggy man. <laughs> I don't know. It's more of a flail man, like, like a shruggy arms, but with like. <laughs> you know, wavy hands. Um, <laughs> it's just that gift <laughs> from Bob's Burgers where she's like, this is where <laughs> this I is thrash. Where I um, so the first story, because you know what we like, Rebecca? We, what, our solution to every problem is if, if you need something to get you fired, let's try a giant book club. That's what we always think is a great idea. <laughs> what is the inverse of if you build it, they will come? <laughs> um, and again, I can understand why you know they're doing this they do have physical locations i knew they do they do host readings and events but they're announcing a new book club series that will have in store i guess ta- you know discussions or presentations or what um and you know a little bit more about this than i do since you you worked in the store so i'll, I'll turn it over to you in a minute but i'll just give you the the dates or the 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 just the facts ma'am so it's going to be the new meg Wolitzer, the female persuasion which Mm-hmm. Um, if we didn't already know that was going to sell a bazillion copies, this is really going to help, I think. Just even if the in-store it's, promo people don't show up for the book club. Yeah. But then they're going to have... It's excellent. There's a lot to chew on. They're going to have the, at the 6 p.m. local time, so wherever, you know, at 6 p.m. wherever you live, on May 2nd, they're going to have uh, an event um, that will have discussions, some leadership stuff. Tell me how this will work. Like, you know, it's been a while since you wore the apron, but like yeah. you have a sense of like how these stores are put together. So how do you imagine this is going to work? You know, when back in my day, <laughs> um, this would be run by the community relations manager, which has a new title now that I can't remember. But Melissa, one of yeah. our longtime uh, fans and community members was explaining that to me earlier this week. Um, and so some stores have people who function in this capacity. And some stores, I think, just have booksellers on staff who are excited about titles, and they get tasked with running a book club about a particular thing. So it'll be, I think, extensive in-store promotion when the book club, when the book comes out, you'll be able to like, see it in the front of the stores. It'll probably be like, this is going to come out as a bestseller. And so it will also, I'm sure, get the Barnes & Noble mm-hmm. membership, like big 30%, 40% discount. And they'll probably be leaning on that for like, hey, come back and come to this book club. And so then there will be, you know, like a circle of chairs set up in some corner of the store and either a community relations type person or just a designated bookseller, I guess, there to lead the conversation. Um, My experience doing these was that even when it was a huge title, like we did Twilight, I was, Mm. I was a bookseller during the Twilight years. Um, You only get a handful of people because there's a, there's actually like a really high barrier to entry to coming to a book club with a bunch of strangers. Um, And so it was usually like the way that it usually worked in my experience was like the community relations manager sits with the, two people who show up or maybe you sit with the first person who shows up and both of you just like really hope that someone else will show up and it's not just the two of you like it and and like twilight it was huge and there were like we were running the club for teenagers and they were supposed to be bringing their friends and sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't but i have not actually seen this work successfully and that's you know my one limited 
data set. Um, but I think like it's hard enough to get into a book club where people stay on time with the titles when it's people you really like and you want to hang yeah. out with voluntarily. Showing up to talk about a book with a bunch of strangers, that's like... I mean, we get paid to think and talk about books, and I don't want to do no, this. Well, we don't I don't want to go talk. We're the wrong, we're the two, we said before, <laughs> weirdly, we're the completely the wrong audience for like literary events because we do books all day, and you know, we don't. We want to watch Netflix at night and like not do Yeah, that. for real. I'm going to watch you know 50 episodes or something. But I think even, <laughs> even if we didn't get paid to do yeah. this all day, if I were just a reader, I don't think this is the way that readers really like to engage with books. Like this is a big book with a lot of interesting stuff to chew on, but you want to chew on interesting stuff with people that you're, that like, it feels safe to chew on big, interesting things with. Like this is a big novel about (laughs) feminism. (laughs) And I, as a feminist, like the last thing that I want to do is roll into a Barnes and Noble with a random group of people. And like, how is this going to go? Am I going to spend an hour listening to some man who read the book talking about how feminism is dangerous? Like the, the worst manifestation of this is that that guy who stands up to not ask a question at the beginning of author events, but to make a statement shows up at the book club and holds forth the whole time. And if you don't know the people and you're just like a bookseller making what, like nine bucks an hour, the work to try to wrangle something like this, like, I mean, I don't know for their sake, I kind of hope no one shows up to this thing so that they don't have to deal with it. But I mean, it's, this is great for Meg Wallitzer, but Meg Wallitzer wasn't going to need any help selling this book anyway. Yeah. Um, like it's a great book club pick. I think they should have just made it like a book club marketing pick and not been like, we're going to tack on events to this. Like it's just no, like if the, the one way that this could work successfully, I think is if some of these stores do have book clubs that just meet in the store, Mm -hmm. you know, like every month, this group of women gets together and they have their book club meeting at the Barnes and Noble cafe. And if their managers know those groups, maybe they could be like, Hey, for the month of May, will you do the Meg Wallitzer book and you can have your meeting here and it'll be a thing. Um, but I can't, I just can't see a bunch of individual readers going to meet strangers at a Barnes and Noble to talk about this. Maybe I am completely wrong. And if that's the case, please let us know at podcast.com. I mean, maybe we should have like spies go and like mill about (laughs) around, like just outside the fringe of where they're meeting. Just in fact, someone please do this. We will talk about your email on the air. If you go to one of these or go see what goes on, because you are 1000% right. This is like, uh, you don't, you don't want to go to this. You're going to get the no. guy. You're exactly right. I can picture him now who's like mansplains all over the place and it's a complete disaster. Like, I guess, look, I, I'm gonna. I, this is going to sound hypocritical in a minute, but like we're playing around with a book club thing in March that Amanda's putting together on Instagram. Um, pers- it's called Persist, which is a feminist book club. But it's not trying to replicate what, you know, a sort of your regular book club is, which is a, a consistent member group that's a private group. And the the value add is like the relationships, right? Like I think when people think about a book club, that's what they're really thinking about. It's like the, the book is secondary to the relationships. And 
if it's if if your meeting group or your read along or whatever is anything other than that, I don't think you can really call it a book club. You're like you have to realize you're doing something different. So on Instagram, this is like we're gonna have discussions and some book uh, Instagram live video and some other stuff. But really, it's a unidirectional discussion with some comments that you can make comments. Like it's not really a book. Club. Like this is like trying to say, what if we just had the world's biggest book club without thinking about what that actually means. Like trying to replicate the thing itself, yeah. Which I, which I don't think is going it's, to work. Um, and could be super cringeworthy. Uh, in fact, I think it's a very yeah, high probability you know, of being super cringeworthy. Yes, yeah. I, I'm actually loving the mental image right now, though, of like random book riot readers out in Barnes and Nobles on May second at six p.m. Just sort of all like tweeting us pictures at the same time of like rows of empty oh, yeah. chairs. Maybe what maybe of, we could do is like a parasite book club. Like go to these Barnes and Nobles at this time, <laughs> but don't go to go to that discussion of the female persuasion. Just wander around the store muttering wheelhouse. And that's the code word that you were there for the book riot book club discussion of <laughs> the, female, the female persuasion by Meg Woolitzer. That's <laughs> so funny. You know, the telling thing will be that Barnes & Noble says that they're launching this as a seasonal book club. This is the spring pick in May. It'll be interesting to see, like, is there a summer pick yeah. in August or a fall pick in September, or does this go away? I'm, I'm looking now at the Ladbrokes, which is you can bet on, like, the Nobel Prize winner. And I'm looking at the oh, odds yeah. for the number of books. No, I'm, I'm, this is a complete <laughs> – I'm saying the over-under for the number of these they held, hold is 1.5. So you need to yep. bet the over or the under. Um, yeah, if this thing lives into 2019, I will eat my yeah, right. It's going like, to join um, Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook book club in the great book. It's in the great junkyard of uh, social media book clubs. <laughs> you know, somebody, oh, it was Kelly Jensen on our back channel the other day was like, whatever happened to the Zuckerberg <laughs> book club? So I went looking and it was only a year of books, which was 2015. Oh, that was, it was 2015? already like. <laughs> yes. That's not Okay. That's that's no, so wasn't many that things long have ago. happened since oh then, Jeff. God. So many things. So that's what happened. I think they did actually maintain it through no. the year, um, but that's why it no longer exists. And at least they had the foresight to say they were just going to try it for a year. Right. Um, man, Barnes and Noble, like, good luck to you, but also. No. You know, if I really put on my tinfoil hat, I would guess that this actually has nothing to do with Barnes & Noble wanting to do community efforts, but has something to do with the folks at Riverhead who have Meg Wallitzer's book and are very canny marketers having a good relationship with somebody in merchandising at Barnes mm. & Noble. I wonder what the half-life of like celebrity or like institutional book clubs are. Like, Emma Watson's one's been going for a while. Andrew Luck. I'm just trying to think of the big ones that are like a mm. book club. How long do they actually last on average? The Emma Watson one's been the going Reese for a couple Witherspoon of years. The Reese Witherspoon thing is like, that's becoming huge. The Reese Witherspoon What do they actually do in picks. that? I mean, they she picks it, I but do they do something? She picks a book. They do, um, I think they do some like video features right. with the authors. Um, I follow her on Instagram and I see it sort of bubble up. Like there's a separate, there's her Instagram account right. and then there's a Reese Witherspoon, whatever book club Instagram account. And I think they are referring to maybe a face, maybe Facebook live events or okay. something, but there are new picks every couple of weeks yeah. and it's getting like, that's getting a lot of traction, but man, I don't know. I do want to see a movie deal for this book because it kind of has the feeling of like the devil wears Prada, but for feminism. I have a thousand percent this would get a movie deal. I mean, I haven't read it, but from what you've said, what other people have said, the marketing push behind it, the moment, like I would be shocked 
if this does not get a movie deal. I guess we'll come back to Barnes and Noble. We'll are talking about Reese. You want to in and movie deals? Let's go yeah. jump down there. Let's talk about that real quick while while we're on. You know, this is good tip. happy news yeah. this week, and we need some of that. Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington are going to star in a TV series adaptation of Celeste Ng's new novel, Little Fires Everywhere. This is just. Excellent news. Um, Witherspoon bought the rights to Little Fires Everywhere shortly after it was published last year, and she brought it to ABC Signature Studios, which is, excuse me, the cable-focused arm of ABC Studios, and they're going to make it. And that's kind of all I have to say about it. Um, I guess it's... Let's see. Do we have a due date for it yet? I, I don't, don't see, see one, yeah. a due date for this one yet, but maybe 2019, 2020 um, will be very exciting. So, and like, it's a great book and a great, I think, fit for mm-hmm. adaptation. This is right in the wheelhouse also of what Reese Witherspoon has been mm-hmm. doing, um, plucking up great books by women and then producing adaptations of them with amazing teams of women, but couldn't happen to also just a better person and member of the literary community. We love Celeste Ng, and I'm so happy to see her have this additional success. I mean, Celeste is like turning into the ultimate we read her when scenario right now. Yeah. Like She is blowed <laughs> right. up, man. It is crazy. Um, good for her. Um, she's doing all – the. Uh, I'm thrilled for Celeste. Um, couldn't happen to, to a better writer. Um, and a nicer, more engaged and, and canny writer. Um, it is interesting too. I mean, I think some of this too. Tell me if I'm wrong. Is the success of oh, is it Big Little? What was it? Called? Big, Big Little, Little Lies. Lies, the Lianne Moriarty adaptation that's getting a season two. That phenomenon. That that one seems to be opening a lot of doors for these mm-hmm. literary novels, or you know, or commercial. I mean, there's a line, right? And I don't know where it is, but like yeah. in that vein. That star women about you know stories about women and star a bunch of interesting women in a in a mini series format like there's some there's some magic there's some magic in that that triangle of yeah. of, of things I think. I think there really is, you know, I think Witherspoon's like first big thing was that she had bought Gone Girl mm-hmm. and then she did Wild, um, but those are really, I think, sort of singular stories in their way. Big Little Lies and Little Fires Everywhere, I think you're right, are similar. Like These are ensemble Mm -hmm. casts, and the work is fiction that takes domestic life seriously. Um, That we would just call literary fiction, really, if dudes had written it, but it's like women's fiction, whatever. Um, Big Little Lies has this mystery aspect that runs through the whole thing, like you know at the very beginning that someone has died, Mm -hmm. but you don't know who it was or why. And Little Fires Everywhere has uh, also Celeste's first book, Everything I Never Told You, has a little bit of a mystery mm. running through it. Like not a mystery book, but a literary story with this these sort of threads of things that you're trying to figure out the whole time. And there's something about um, putting those on screen and watching these casts of women sort of unspool the stories that really works well. Um, but Reese Witherspoon, I think she is just like, she's kind of finding the mm-hmm. sweet spot for what's going to work well on TV. It, it takes these women's lives seriously. There's a variety of stories and a variety of perspectives inside each book. Um, and that's also really interesting. Nothing is homogenous, um, makes for really fun reading. I read Big Little Lies on the plane coming back from Book Riot Live the year of the election when it was like, how am I ever going to read a book again? (laughs) And, um, you know, like it was all just so fresh and the story just pulled me 
write in. These are great stories to bring to the screen. And it's kind of fun now to play the game of like, what's the next thing Reese Witherspoon will adapt? Well, and I think there's something too. I mean, again, it's one of those um, genres that gets maligned much like romance, but on TV, like, and again, this is going to sound like an insult initially because I, but I don't mean it this way, but there, there's a known, there's a known, you know, market in terms of just like lifetime movies, direct to TV movies yeah. mm-hmm. of domestic stories. Again, they're melodramatic and they can be absurd, but uh, again, it's in, to use a publishing term, an upmarket version of those stories that yes. are about women's domestic lives and the things that happen and there's mystery and suspense and tension. And it's the kind of thing that you can watch uh, with a glass of wine uh, and be and feel and it's and it's artful but also it's plotty like it's it's juicy there's a lot going on like i think that is a a really fertile ground for really great tv um and again i mean that in the in the with the highest compliment like mm-hmm. it's not easy to get people engaged yeah, and, um does that sound right to you, you i know, mean like, is that I, fair it does yeah it is fair. You know, Big Little Lies, I think, is a really excellent example of it because it wrestles with really big issues. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, one of the women in the story or one of the women in the book, her whole storyline is centered on pretty violent domestic abuse. And we see it on the page. Um, they put it right on the screen on the in the HBO adaptation, which I was really interested to see how they would approach it. And Nicole Kidman plays that character and just did an astonishing job of it but it was it was difficult to read it was very difficult to watch but it's in the context of this sort of thrillery domestic um sub, it's like suburban melodrama mm-hmm. is the frame but you use or, or you know Moriarty uses it and I think Celeste Ng also uses this sort of suburban melodrama domestic issues to get to big juicy questions that if you just were like here is a big movie about domestic assault you you don't get to the same place. You don't get the as wide of an audience to talk about this really big, important issue. So it's also very, I think, very clever and yeah. smart in that way of let's go to big, the, the kinds of big things in life that fiction is supposed to explore and have the understanding that you get more people into exploring them if you put interesting plot and compelling characters around It's almost it. like and suburban just, noir. Like it, it, there's something yeah, to that. Like it's, it's interesting. It, it is. You know, I think I first started thinking about that sort of subgenre with like Tom Parada mm-hmm. when Little Children came out that like suburban melodrama really is its own whole thing. Um, but Leanne Moriarty does that very well. And Celeste Ng does it very well in a different kind of way in her books. And there are a ton of especially women writers doing this that it gets kind of tossed off as like book club fiction or entertaining mm-hmm. fiction or stuff to read by the pool, because it happens to be very compelling and interesting to read. Like we, I think we have this notion that if fiction is about a big serious issue, it's not supposed to be compelling or enjoyable it's supposed to be like difficult work <laughs> to read you know to read the book that's somehow like that somehow it's just all supposed to be unpleasant um, and there's this cadre of women writers that are really getting to those meaty issues about especially women's lives and they're getting into it in the it's like shiny pink packaging mm. but what's inside is really important interesting yeah um so th- we're really excited to see that we'll give more updates as um uh, we, we should get Celeste to tell us the story of like 
what was it like? I mean, how does this, I'd like to know, how does this go down? Like, like does Reese Witherspoon call you one day and then you just die? Yeah, I I don't, I'd love, I'd love to know. Cause like the other thing I've always, and maybe this is like some future annotated prospecting I'm thinking about, like, but how does it, how does the book get in the person's hands who then gets it in the person's hands? Like we've wondered aloud about this with like the Oprah Mm -hmm. book complex, but then how did something, or like Obama's book selection. Right. Yeah. (laughs) But like for this one, there's agents involved. I know there are book scouts that work in Hollywood in the TV and film industry that are, you know, they're looking for material to adapt. But I'd love to know like the blow by blow of how something something mm-hmm. like this happens. So anyway, that, that's a, that's just, I guess I'm just saying I want to know that because it seems fascinating. But also it seems close to us because it's Celeste and we know her and she's been a friend of the side and been on Reading Lives and recommended and, and, and been a real, a real um, pal uh, to us there as well. Uh, I should mention, I'll put a link to the Book Riot Persist um, Instagram book club, uh, if you want to go check that out. Starting next week, the 19th, maybe, is the first thing we're doing. So the book is, I don't even know, has Amanda announced the book? It is. It has. Okay. It is. Um, I can never get the order right. Too slutty, too fat, too loud, or per- perhaps yeah, in a different I'm listening order to an audio right Helen now, and Peterson. I can't keep it straight either. Ah, <laughs> oh, man, it's good. And the book is basically... Uh, the frame is like unruly women, and each chapter is a profile of a woman who's unruly and kind of unpacking. Yeah, who's like too much. Yeah, too much in of some way. You know, too fat, too slutty, too loud, too whatever. Um, interesting chapters, really good work to to do there. Good on audio. Uh, I think Peterson. I think she narrates it herself. I've been enjoying it. Uh, listening to it on Libby, <coughs> by the way. Shout out. I know you're shocked. <laughs> you know, I finally got a Libby what? account this wait, week. Wait, you're yep. bearing the lead. What? Wait, wait a minute. We should have led the show with this. How are you finding it? <laughs> Good. Yeah. I was. I'm trying to do fewer uh, ebook impulse yeah. buys, mm. and especially because I never read them as quickly <laughs> as I think I'm going to. Uh, so I was like, you know, I'll just see if my library has this. So I opened. I put Libby on my iPad. I requested the book, but the book that I requested, I'm like 95th on the mm-hmm. holds list for. So we'll see. But the experience was very simple, like putting in my library card number and it identifying my library and finding the catalog and all that like that was very smooth and simple um so like so far so good but i will keep you posted when i actually get something through libby full disclosure they are not sponsoring this show but they do sponsor us blah 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 but anyway sponsors of our sponsors (laughs) that's a good show (laughs) title all right Uh, the thing i'm more interested in in the barnes and noble skunk works um over there is that's a good show title uh (laughs) Barnes & Noble will open – this is a story in Publishers Weekly. Barnes & Noble opened five prototype stores in fiscal 2019, um, which I can never remember what the fiscal year is. That's why I run a business, Rebecca. Um, <laughs> so the new stores will be around 14,000 square feet, making them roughly 12,000 square feet smaller than the chain's typical store, so okay. about half. Uh, and they're going to do five of them basically – the long story short, they're going to try to connect it to barnesandnoble.com. It sounds like they're copycatting the Amazon stores. That's my TLR, uh, TLDR mm. uh, about this. The first one will open in late summer 2019 in Hackensack, New Jersey, with additional sites still be determined. Um, the, other, the other nugget buried here that's related to things we've cared about, there are no plans to open any more so-called kitchen stores, which I'm sure <laughs> you and I are shocked to hear. Man, that didn't work out for yeah. them? <laughs> uh, this 
uh, who is this guy? I think they're C- their new CEO. You can't keep them straight. Who's the new CEO of Barnes & Noble given time? That's never a good sign either. Said book sales at the kitchen stores performed about the same as in its traditional locations. The company was also able to gain some ideas about food will work best in this cafe. So that's kind of interesting. Again, I don't want to kill Barnes & Noble for trying experiments because – it could. I mean, it, maybe it works. You know, that's one where I don't know. They have a data point to to point out uh, to really sense like maybe it'll work. Um, but it sounds like the kitchen store path is a, is a dead end. Um, let's see. The company will soon add the ability for customers to buy and pay for a book online, then pick up the title at their local store within an hour. That's assuming they have the book in stock because they don't have receiving man. Anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> um, see, sales at Barnes and Noble fell about five percent in the quarter. They didn't put a lot of marketing muscle behind the online operation as it worked to stay blind as a physical store. He views BN.com as a giant catalog can help customers learn what is available at the retailer. Well, Barnes and Noble, by the way, if you're looking you know, for a place to advertise, BN.com, I may have an idea for you. That's a separate conversation. Uh, what do you think of this smaller you know, store? I deal? am most interested in the very last line of this piece that they view BN.com as a catalog to help customers learn what's available at the retailer. Hmm. Why, why, like, why are you most interested in that? You like in this in this day and age, <laughs> Jeff O'Neill. <laughs> Cold medicine, yeah. y'all. Um, using like this just really seems short sighted to only or primarily view your website that you can sell things through as a way to help customers see what they could get in the physical stores. This is like if Walmart was like, you know, we don't really care if Wal- if people buy things from walmart.com. We just want them to search walmart.com and then come into mm. their local Walmart. We'd be like, what on earth does that mean? Like, why aren't they marketing the website? People shop online. You can buy your digital books online at Barnes & Noble. You can order all sorts of things from bn.com. Like, Why the focus on using the website as a funnel for the physical locations, which is an inverse, I think, of what Amazon seems to be trying to do with their stores, right. which is use the physical stores as a funnel for more online activity or for getting prime memberships at the very least. And that just seems like I want to know more about this. Like why build a huge digital system for retail, for a giant retail company with a jillion outlets, and then be like, you know, but we really just want to focus on the people we can get to come into the doors of our store. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, again, maybe they have data about the browsing habits of people and that the people look for stuff online and they come and buy it in the store. That does not jive uh, at all with my sense of what Barnes & Noble's strengths are. It, look, I like the idea of smaller stores. If 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 it were me running Barnes & Noble... And again, and I'm super unqualified to do it. I'm just saying if it were me, my experiment would be, can we basically do a chain of like indie bookstore clone stores that feel like you're going into an indie bookstore? Like play your Ella Fitzgerald, have the coffee there, have handwritten right. shelf talkers, like do the thing, but then then do all the back end stuff that Barnes & Noble crushes indie bookstores on, which is inventory management and pricing and, you know, uh, a, a chain, uh, merchandise chain stuff. Like you can get a good – you could go in – think if you go into an indie bookstore-like experience and still get the 30% off of a, of a hardcover. That's where I would find – no one else yeah. can do that. That's what I would do. So maybe they are going to do that. But like 
the experience in-store experience in-store experience in-store experience like that would be the mantra i would be barking up and down the the halls of you know the their their offices over there in tribeca if it were up to me yes i agree with that i'm just still <laughs> yes. like yes thank you for affirming yes. my, my rage <laughs> let me plant my flag there um i just I'm stuck here, though. Like, I'm trying to imagine, I'm trying to get outside of books and think about some other industry. Like, I don't know, like Ikea, you know, like there's not an Ikea in every city, but you could get Ikea in every city if you used the internet. Like, we don't have one in Richmond. The closest one is 90 minutes away, but I see Ikea commercials. So, and they usually are like, shopikea.com. But imagine if those Ikea commercials were like, check out the catalog at ikea.com and come into the store today. It would be like, well, but uh, but how am I going to, I have to go 95 miles now to do it? Like you have, they have the whole structure in place. They have built the house to sell the people, the books and the games and all the other whatnots online, which is where so much retail activity takes place now. Like why only, I don't know, Maybe I'm just too attached to this sentence, but like, why just view your website as a catalog for customers to see what's available in store? The whole idea of online selling is that you can sell more online than you could sell in the stores. I mean, my reading between the line, because we only get one line about it here, is <laughs> maybe they're finding that people aren't buying stuff on barnesandnoble.com. Like, frankly, mm. if you're going to buy a book online, why choose Barnes & Noble over Amazon, which... Probably you, you may or may not have a Prime account. It's probably a little bit cheaper and it gets shipped there faster. And you can throw in your soap and toilet paper. on. Like I'm wondering if what, there's, what this is really about is the weakness of their online book sales. Mm. And like, okay, we have this presence. Maybe if we funnel it to our strength. You know, everyone's read a stat. And again, I'm going to bungle this. And it's that it will be accurate but not precise to use one of my favorite distinctions. But basically in the <laughs> restaurant industry, I guess – there's a thing if you can get someone to come to your store to your restaurant twice, your chances of them becoming a recurring patron going forward goes up by some crazy percentage. Uh, and I should I'm not mm. trying to like, some surprisingly big percentage, right? So maybe what they're thinking is we're not selling books online, but let if but if we get people to the store, we know if they come once, they'll come you know, some percent of them will become recurrent buyers. And when they come to the store to pick up that one book, maybe they're going to pick up like a chocolate bar or a cup of coffee or a calendar mm-hmm. a or bag, some other book. Yeah, so maybe there's some other um, cofactor at play, which is not really that particular purchase that they care about so much getting them to the store, but that what getting the store means for that customer's relationship with, with the physical location going forward. That would be my generous reading of this particular thing. I hope you're right. But you know what I mean? Like maybe it's more about yeah, patterns, yeah. establishing mm-hmm. patterns and habits than picking up my um, discounted copy of the Goldfinch online yeah, versus buying know, it from I BN. guess my ungenerous reading is like, wh- where else have we seen like, and maybe it's just that these things are so opaque. Yeah. Like we're not learning a lot about Barnes and Noble's logic, but we don't see a lot of logic in a lot of the decisions that they seem to be making. And so it's like, well, but why would I believe that it's that sensitive? Yeah, maybe, um, I don't know. You know, let's talk about our next sponsor, which has an excellent title. Oh, is this me? Am I doing and this one? It's I, Well, I'm setting you oh, up okay, for it. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Everything is Horrible and Wonderful um, by Stephanie Whittles. Uh, wax. Box is there. I didn't look all the way down. There's a lot of talking points. Oh, yeah, Whittles Wax mm-hmm. is what they're telling me. So here's the synopsis. Um, 
You know what? I'm going to do the talking points first because I think this is better than the synopsis. So Everything is Horrible and Wonderful is a grief memoir based on Stephanie Whittle's Wax's essay, The New Normal, which was originally published on Medium and has been seen read more than a quarter million times. Um, Whittle's Wax Brothers, Harris Whittle's, was an up-and-coming comedy writer, and I'm going to skip to the things we care about. He was uh, he was an actor and writer and producer of Parks and Recreation. You probably know him best. Oh, what was the character's name? Oh, oh he was one of the guys at the um, Animal yeah, Control Yeah, Animal department. Control. Um, kind of a stoner character. Um, and, you know, basically with heroin abuse on the rise and the opioid crisis reaching the critical mass in the U.S., her, her story about her brother's overdose and death prompts an important conversation about the impact of addiction. So cutting through the talking points a little bit, she's talking about her brother Harris's struggle with heroin and his overdose and how it happened, what went down, trying to tell his story. Um, it was picked as an Amazon Best Book of the Month. Um, and, you know, let's see this stuff. And so here's the synopsis that they're using, which is kind of, it's an interesting synopsis, but I wanted to frame it a little bit differently. Uh, one phone call, that's all it took to change Stephanie Wilde Wax's life forever. Her brother Harris, a star in the comedy world known for his work on shows like Parks and Recreation, had died of a heroin overdose. In beautiful, unsentimental, and surprisingly funny prose, Stephanie Wilde's Wax alternates between her brother's struggle with addiction and the first year after his death and all its emotional dev- devastation. This is a compelling portrait of a comedic genius and a profound exploration of the love between siblings. It's... Um, uh, is a year of magical thinking for a new generation of readers. They should lead with that. That's a great line. Mm-hmm. Um, it will make you laugh, cry, and wonder if that possum on the fence is really your brother's spirit animal. That's maybe a bit of a non sequitur, but if you know Harris Whittle's works at all, maybe not. Um, I am circling this. I would love to read this. I'm a little worried about the snot bomb factor. Yeah. Um, but yeah, boy, oh, this yeah, sounds the like snot, an interesting This is a five-alarm snot bomb. The, we now get uh, tweets people from people. We got one the other day. It's like I'm reading a five alarm snot bomb right now. Then they just they just add us on Twitter, which I appreciate. Uh, what yeah, do you think? Are nice you gonna? To would you? Uh, oh, yeah. I the grief memoir is a thing that I am for some reason drawn mm. to. I loved and a year of magical thinking was my gateway drug. But I end up reading a couple of these a year. I have not yet done what was that one? When breath becomes oh, air. I've not gone. Easy, yeah. I. Phew, I have not gone there yet, but this I it's just this part of life that I don't think we talk about very well and very openly. And so reading about it, I think it helps me get my head around those things. Um, I'm probably going to read this. Liberty was talking about it mm. recently and um, doing something this serious, but doing it with humor and warmth, I think is really tough. And it sounds like Stephanie Whittle's wax has done that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks but, for them yeah, for sponsoring the, the show. Um, uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, I, that's I think would be a great read. Uh, I'm not sure for me personally if I'm going to be able to. If I do it, I can't do it in audio because I'd like to. Oh, I'd like no. to stop crying at some point. Yeah, you can't life. do the snot bombs on audio. That's just torture. all right. Where do we want to wrap this story? Uh, it's not really a rant corner. I guess it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing thinking face emoji um, in the <laughs> world of the best. You know, the opaqueness of bestseller lists is one of the great sort of like. It's not a big de- well. I don't know. Maybe it is a big deal. I, in some circles, it's a big deal. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know how much of a big deal it is, but like that, we don't have good public. E- even the stuff you pay for is 
compromised in some way to know what books are selling. And really the only people that know are the publishers and they ain't telling. And the way, and the way they record it is also very strange. So adding to the, this is one of those things that feels like it should be clarifying, but I actually think it's confusing. So I'm, I'm very deleted what I'm talking about. I'm just like spinning myself into circles. But the <laughs> New York Times is launching a monthly audiobook bestseller list. Um, it will publish monthly audiobook bestseller lists for the first time, featuring the top 15 fiction and top 15 fiction audiobook lists based on sales from the pre- previous month. The lists, which combine physical and digital audio sales, will debut online Thursday, March 8th. That's today. I should go look online. Woo! Um, so there we go. And do you want to? I'm going to pass you the baton for why this is weird and and not and maybe not as helpful as it sounds. Or you can give it right back well, to me if you want. But maybe someone else should take this for a minute while I calm down. <laughs> like the, we're not as upset about this as we are about ebook pricing, but we're annoyed. Um, you know, the thing that's weird, or like the actually the thing that's missing from this press release about it is where the numbers are coming from. And it does not say whether these will include Amazon slash Audible numbers. And like to our best knowledge, most New York Times bestseller lists don't include Amazon or is it book scan that doesn't include I don't know. So that, there it is. Because Amazon that, is that thing you did right? Right like there, we don't that's know. That's the ball we, game that we're we pushed off about. We don't know. Like Amazon is so tight lipped about all things data related that we don't know where these are coming from and audiobook bestseller lists especially like this will be meaningless if it doesn't include Audible. It's just like these numbers will not mean anything. Bestseller lists already don't really mean anything. Like there, there was that expose a couple of months ago where we were like, is this the beginning? You know, when that woman like managed yeah. to game her way onto the um, YA bestseller list, of like, is this the beginning of the house of cards coming down? And like, sadly, I don't think that mm-hmm. we have seen that happen yet with bestseller list. But if it doesn't include audible numbers, it won't be robust and they're not telling us if it's going to include audible numbers. So like, I don't know if this is ongoing thinky face emoji so much as the shruggy man of like this, what does it even mean? Like now we're going to have a list of audiobooks that people have bought. Like I feel very, I guess, purred happily yeah. about this. Like these are audiobooks that people have paid money for, but how many people and where, and how does this relate to the whole world like of audiobook sales? Is it representative of those or not? So, so I'm glad that the New York Times is acknowledging what audiobooks are right. doing. Like I think that this is the one upside is the New York Times is recognizing that audiobooks are playing an increasingly large role in readers' lives. This is a growing segment of book sales. Audiobooks are also just a different beast. And what is a great audiobook is kind of different from what's just a great hardcover. Mm. Like things work well and become audio bestsellers that aren't bestsellers in hardcover, um, that, that I'm interested enough in those differences. I think it's important to acknowledge yes. those. Glad to see the New York Times doing it. But I want to know where the numbers are coming from, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, like, if if they really were, I mean, Audible is the the 900-pound gorilla in the digital audiobook sales world. Um, and really, you know, if you look at the the year-over-year declines, physical audio sales are are down mid double digits year over year, like every month. I mean, I'm actually kind of surprised it's not more, but we have no sense because Audible doesn't tell anybody. I would bet all the clothes in my closet that, and I'm just because I'm looking at it, I love lamp, um, that <laughs> that Audible is not reporting this. And so they're getting oh, yeah. digital download numbers from maybe Nook, Kobo, 
Apple iTunes, Google Play, a downpour. I'm like, I don't even know where else you would go. Just as an example, like Publishers Weekly, they do, they have their book scan reporting, um, which I they've changed and I hate because they don't give you year to date numbers. But that's you know another very small hill for me to die on. But <laughs> it is interesting because they give you the iTunes audiobook bestsellers. And those are radically different than the print bestsellers. Like you'll see some names mm-hmm. that are familiar, but they're in a different order. You'll see big spikes. It seems to me there's a lot of spikes around audiobooks, um, bestsellers, and those around a new adaptation. Now, maybe it's small sample size. And so if, you know, if you're getting a different kind of customer that's buying from there um, than other places. But if this doesn't have Audible, it doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, or right. it doesn't yeah, mean no. the thing that I think you're not saying the thing you think you're saying if you're giving me a list of audiobook bestsellers right. that include Audible. Because um, what really, really yeah, what it's we want not is an regression actual to look the at mean. the state of the world. We need enough big, big yeah. enough data set that we're regressing to the mean, even if we're not getting everybody. And that's leaving everybody out. In BookScan numbers, I, my understanding is that Amazon does not report sales to BookScan. That's my understanding. Yeah, like to have a bestseller list, especially of audiobooks that doesn't include numbers that come from Amazon Audible is kind of to be like, here's the most popular fast food and you don't include McDonald's. Yeah, right. You know, like, like you, you're trying to, an, a bestseller list, if it's doing what it is supposed to be doing, is supposed to give you a look at the state of the world right. of, you know, here are the books that are selling in the world in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not the case if you don't have Amazon numbers. You're giving a look at something, but you're not giving a look at the whole state of the world. In fact, you could you would do better by having only Amazon numbers because the, the estimates right. are they do 60% of print sales in the US and like 90% of digital sales. So like you're measuring everything but the most important thing it seems bananas. It's like if you were taking if you're doing um, presidential polling and you're only polling like New Hampshire Wyoming, and then like the suburbs of Des Moines, and just sort of saying, well, that's pretty representative. <laughs> like, that, that doesn't, that's nonsensical to me. I'm, I guess where I'm coming at is like, this is maybe worse than nothing. Like, this might be worse than yeah. not doing it at all. And it's one of those things that like, bestseller lists, I think, are in the most generous sense, intended to be a reader service, that readers who are curious can see these are the things that are popular that other readers care about. And if you're doing reader service, but you're not actually serving your readers by telling, like by giving them the full sense of the world. That's one problem. But there's room to give caveats, right? Like they should be saying like, here's where the numbers come from. Here's what you can know. But in the same way, like I'm still harping on how um, Go Set a Watchman was presented and that like, instead of saying this is the original and isn't it interesting to see how far Harper Lee came when she did To Kill a Mockingbird, they were like, let's just pretend it's a totally different thing. Like, you're not actually serving your readers. If you're like, here's a list of bestsellers. P.S. They're not actually bestsellers. We better end the show because now we're on Harper Lee and we could be here all day. <laughs> so that's our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. You can browse, find the links to the, ep- the stories we talked about this week. Go to bookriot.com slash listen. Also, you can find the links in the show notes and your podcast catcher, your podcast player. It's right there. Put them in there. Uh, thanks to our sponsors this week. Um, Children of Blood and Bone. Oh, I'm trying to get... I, I, the Wicked no, Deep. No, that one I've got. I was trying to get the... the, the, the uh, everything is Horrible and Wonderful. I couldn't remember if everything is wonderful and horrible. It's kind of like the what's the... Incredibly loud and fantastically close. I can never get those adjectives. Something like that. Extremely loud and incredibly close. (laughs) Everything is horrible and wonderful by Stephanie Whittle's Wax um, and The Wicked Deep.
by Shay Earnshaw. Thanks for them. Sounds for the show. You can check out also the Book Riot Instagram Feminist Book Club. It's like we need an acronym. Uh, you go check out there, and we'll be back next week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Talk to you later. Have a good one. <laughs>